What is happening, you beautiful bastards? Welcome back to another week. This week, we talked to a man. That man is named Terry Thiel. And that man also has a very interesting book and a very interesting theory about- We're all fucked. The future, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, it was definitely a lot right there uh, with Grizz's perspective where everything is just going to burn to the fucking ground. Every I don't think time. it's going to burn to the Every ground. Every time we I talk about the future, <laughs> Grizz thinks it's all- uh, fire and brimstone he's no, probably I have, right. better, <laughs> I have more faith in the human species than that i just want you know certain aspects <laughs> i also have faith in the human species they 100 percent will destroy themselves mm. it's but true. <laughs> we're actually talking to terry about uh his theory on how the human species is not ready for the next human age which is all digital and technology and there's i'd say there's a a lot of power to his theory i think he's pretty accurate yeah he brings up a lot of, a lot of things that i guess not everyone's thinking about and they should be thinking chris what was your favorite part of this episode we're about to roll into uh caught you with your pants down i go all over the place in this episode but uh one of the aspects that i kind of thought about is the fact that technology and how fast it's changing nowadays if you took someone from 1800 and brought them to today they'd literally die <laughs> <laughs> i did like that take on it uh but let's see what you guys think after you listen what is happening you beautiful bastards My, my purpose in writing the book was it, I've spent the past 40, 50 years trying to get either government officials or corporate officers or graduate students to try to think about the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and 40 years worth of musings, uh, I finally, now that I'm semi-retired, sat down and, and put uh, finger to keyboard uh and and wrote them down um but my purpose isn't to tell everybody what the future is going to be it's going to my purpose is to start an argument or two or three uh debate (laughs) and get people to talk about the issues that i'm raising i i don't know if i'm right uh but i do know their issues and so uh take it where you want it so well we're kind of already into it now so what kind of reception has has it received from the people that you're really interested in making sure they read it? Well, and, and, and of course, everybody's got their uh, uh, groupings. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. There's a Robin Dunbar, a professor, uh, has done a study of uh, uh, human beings uh, uh, and how they uh, interact in, in groups. And there's what's known as the Dunbar's number, uh, which is uh, about 150 people that you have interaction with in different degrees. So if you think of the 150 people that I have interactions with, people I've known in work Mm -hmm. uh, um, and uh, socially, uh, and those are the people that, and LinkedIn, those are the people that have seen the book um, for the first go around. 
I've I've been gratified by the Amazon reviews. I you know I've got a five zero on on the on the reviews, and people are generally very positive in their reaction. At least the ones who didn't lose the will to live while they were reading. <laughs> <laughs> so. I guess we should ask then for the viewers, what is the, the, what is the question? What is the debate you're trying to start then? All right, well, let me give you my thesis. I would argue that humanity has gone through three ages. The first age from about 200,000 years ago when we became anatomically modern humans to 11,000, 12,000 years ago, we were hunter-gatherers. We lived in small bands coming out of Africa uh, and populated the world. From about 11,000 to, I'll pick a date, 1785, uh, <laughs> we were farmers and herders, overwhelmingly. Uh, now, I, I and, and began to form villages and towns and cities and nations and all that. I picked 1785 because that's when steam engines became commercially available that were really viable uh, mm. uh, tools uh, for uh, propelling the Industrial Revolution. And, and that it was our third age, the Industrial Revolution, when we made things. And I ran that up to 2020 and used COVID as sort of the breaker simply because throughout our history as a species, whenever you've had a really good plague uh, it's fundamentally shifted societies. Uh, it killed feudalism, killed the Roman Empire, um, uh, killed the Athenian Republic, you know. Okay, so. <laughs> we could see it changing things now too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly so. So I would argue we're about to embark on a fourth age. Now, what differentiates this fourth age? If you look at the preceding three ages, the degree and the rate of change in societal issues and technological issues was relatively modest up until the time you got to the Industrial Revolution. And then we're, we're seeing urbanization and technology take off. I would argue the fourth age that we're about to uh, step off the cliff, the number of dramatic societal disruptions and technological innovations are all happening at the same time and are going to create a future that we can't even imagine. And it's going to happen within your lifetime, um, very possibly my lifetime, but uh, with modern medicine, who could tell? Uh, and the purpose of the book was to at least identify that we are going through this hot, you know, plate tectonic change, if you will. And to, and, and in large measure, we're, we're doing a lot of things wrong <laughs> because we don't see it yep. and we're planning for the wrong future. And I'm just trying to raise a number of issues to get people to say, well, what about this? And what about that? And I, I, a good example, Hans Rosling uh, was a Swedish, I believe he started out as a physician, but he became 
relatively well known as a statistician and a public speaker. Um, he uh, did uh, and passed away a couple of years ago, regrettably, published a book and uh, in 2019, what he had done is he had gone around the world and surveyed populations, asking them a set of 13 questions. And I want to say it was 17 countries, 12,000 people. He started off uh, surveying our perfume delete at Davos. Uh, and what he discovered was that the vast majority of people really don't know the facts about the state of the world. So he's asking about the rate of uh, uh, um, poverty. Mm. And is it worse, the same, or better? Uh, reading skills, education of children around the world. Uh, a series of questions like that. And the point he made, and they were all three question, uh, three answer questions. And the point he made is, a troop of monkeys, if you had given them this test, they would have gone 33, 33, 33 on the choices. Humans were beaten out by a troop of monkeys in answering <laughs> these questions. Uh, so the basic ruling elites, I'm not picking Republican, Democrat, I'm, you know, liberal, Tory, you know, it doesn't matter. The ruling elites around the world don't know the state of the world. I would absolutely agree with that. <laughs> so they are setting policies and have expectations that are not going to actually solve the real problems because they're not looking at the real problems. And, and, let, and let me give you a couple examples uh, of, you know, everybody talks about the you know, overpopulation of the world. And uh, the UN estimates that by the end of the century, we'll be at about 11 to 12 billion, something like that in, in population. Well, in truth, if you look at the data, 95% of the population growth between now and the end of the century is Africa. Mm -hmm. Half of the countries of the world are below reproduction levels. Yeah, we're falling. Eastern Europe, Japan, Korea, are forecast to lose 40% of their population. Now, if you've got an African country that's growing by 500%, and you've got an Eastern European country that's dropping by 40%, I would argue that those are both dramatic destabilizing factors mm. that challenge the political uh, elites to cope. Nobody's looking at that. Now, layer on top of that, there's a range of demographic experts who take issue with the UN. And they argue that because of urbanization, for the first time ever, more people live in cities than in the country. When women get to cities, they stop having babies. They're, uh, they have better medical care, uh, they have access to education, and you don't need kids to work the field. Uh, and so a lot of demographics experts are arguing that we're not ever going to make it to 11 billion. In fact, one of the estimates, there's like a 3 billion gap, two, two to 3 billion gap says mm -hmm. we're going to, we'll be lucky to get to 9 billion, probably somewhere in the 8 billion range. And that's going to happen within the next 10 to 20 years. 
And once we reach max population, populations will then start to decline and they don't stop. Now, we've been thinking for the last however long that the world is going to be filled with people. I keep thinking back to a 1960s uh, TV uh, edition of Star Trek. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the episode where they had all the people crowded together, you know, and and he had to catch a disease. He he had to catch a disease or give a disease to a woman so she could take it back so everybody could get sick and die and save their (laughs) planet. Yeah, okay. But the point is the mindset that we're growing and growing and we have to uh, uh, cope with that is wrong. Uh, We have to start planning for uh, a period when we're shrinking. I mean, look at China right now, right? China's uh, facing it right now where they're not going to have in the very They're over population. Yeah, they're not going to have enough people to work. Well, now there's an additional problem for China and India. Uh, for regulatory and cultural reasons different between the two. Both have, for over a generation, uh, much longer than a generation, pushed, uh, well, not self-selected males over females when it came to births. As a result, there are 25 million Chinese men for which there are no Chinese women. So they're not going to reproduce. There are 80 million uh, Indian men for which there are no Indian women. (laughs) The math doesn't work. (laughs) Now, think about all of that unrequited testosterone, okay? Uh, That's a lot of uh, political destabilization right there. So these these are dramatic societal changes. And I don't know the answer, but I don't think we're talking about them. We're not... We don't have that strategic perspective as to what the implications are. Now, you, you layer on top of that the, the, you know, the technology disruptions that are hitting us one after the other, 3D printing, the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, synthetic biology, new materials, nanotechnology, cheap, ubiquitous off-grid energy. And that's just a couple. Yeah, we got and the metaverse all... coming, too, where everybody wants to yeah. be in a virtual world. Is all coming together at the same time, and so we are going. And this again, I'm nothing in my book is new. I'm just stealing from other people and strung the beads together. (laughs) Um, We are going from a world of a few that make thousands to a world of a thousands that make a few. Mm -hmm. So the the underlying third age Henry Ford mass production model of global economies is obsolete and indifferent. You can see it in music. You can see it in literature. You know, this, my book uh, is published by Amazon and I don't have any inventory. When somebody orders a copy, it's printed real time and shipped. Okay, so think of a future where you don't have inventory, where everything is made real time, customized uh, on an as needed basis. It is a fundamentally different economic model. And uh, again, nobody's talking about that. And the poster child for this is is sustainability. It's, It's climate change. 
now, of course, the climate has always been changing. The, the issue is how much has it been altered by human behavior? Well, all of the thinking at the present time, the unspoken assumption is that our future is going to be more of the same. That is, our third age Henry Ford mass production model is going to continue into the future. And the environmental profile that is associated with that is going to continue to drive us over a cliff. Well, what if that isn't the economic model? What if it is a fundamentally different economic model with a fundamentally different uh, environmental profile? Mm. Uh, and the implications for climate change, as well as all of the other uh, environmental issues, is, is dramatic. And uh, nobody's talking about that. Yeah, I actually, well, I bring this up with, with Grizz here and my wife frequently, where we, uh, Grizz has uh, three kids and I have two. And, you know, I, and when I had kids, I didn't really think about this too much because I was in my 20s. But now I look forward to the future and I wonder, with the population that we have coming, what are they going to do to basically work or take care of themselves? And if they choose to have a family, how will they take care of them? I don't see enough jobs existing for the amount of people we're going to have. Well, it's interesting. There was a science fiction book written in, I think it was 1999, by Neil Stevenson called The Diamond Age. And in it, Stevenson describes a future where the world is run by, um, if you will, a combination of artificial intelligence and 3D printing and nanotechnology. And long story short, we, we went from 200,000 years ago where every waking hour was spent trying to survive and put food in your mouth to a future where most people, virtually most of the population in, in this science fiction book, they didn't need to work. Mm. Everything they needed was provided for them, housing, clothing, food. Um, they were basically warehoused because they didn't need to work in order to, to put food in their mouths. And the challenge presented by the, the, the book was, well, what do you do when you have nothing to do? I mean, <laughs> how much bad poetry could you write? <laughs> it's, it's true, though. I mean, if you look at nowadays, there's, if you took it to where no one had to, to worry about money, and I don't think you'll ever get to a point where they're going to live luxuriously uh, without money. They just survive, right? Even nowadays, what kind of like innovation are you seeing coming out? What kind of new and, and mind-bendingly breaking technology are we seeing, right? There's nothing well, yeah, crazy. Yeah, when you think of the combination of 3D printing and nanotechnology, just those two with new materials, mm -hmm. And the capacity to basically print anything at any size from the nano size on up. And that includes they're printing food. They, they are you know, uh, creating artificial meat. You know, they take, you know, basically they start with a, a, a set of cells, they grow the cells and then they extract from the cells to grow more cells. And they basically grow a steak and print it um, to 3D printing uh, tissues and uh, living organ, uh, you know, organs, you know, replace mm -hmm. your heart with a 
printed uh, uh, one, printing houses. Yep, yeah, they're doing the uh, Mars uh, habitat. That's right, the habitat. Uh, basically, the military is getting to the point where on naval ships and in the army, they're uh, looking to 3D printers as in lieu of carrying an inventory of spare parts, having mm -hmm. a 3D printer on board that will make the part that you need that got broken. Yeah. Um, so again, the, the entire framework of what we've traditionally thought of in terms of work and how you make things is, is, is going by the boards. Uh, mm -hmm. It'll be fundamentally different. In the meantime, we're, we're still suffering the, uh, the failures of, of our political elite since the end of the Second World War. Uh, I'd argue that we uh, have had a political compact between the, the voter and the elected official. Uh, and there were four parts to the compact. The voter said, I will vote for you if you give me four things, because I can't figure out all of this stuff about <laughs> foreign affairs and whatever. It's way too complicated. You take care of that. You just deliver four things for me. I want to have a job so I can feed my family. I want my family to be safe. I want my kids to have a future. And unless I'm hurting somebody, I want you to leave me alone. We're falling short on all of those as far as what they're yeah, I, I would, and that's that's why we had uh, uh, Donald Trump. That's why we have Brexit. Uh, I don't think Donald Trump was the cause. I think he was the the symptom mm -hmm. of that that disenfranchisement felt by a substantial portion of the electorate. Yeah, they voted him in because he wasn't the norm. Yeah, I mean, this was. Uh, uh, you know, rakes, pitchforks, and uh, uh, um, you know, uh, bonfires. Uh, let's let's start over, uh, burn it down, and start over. Mm -hmm. uh, I like it. And 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 what what makes this troubling? And and here's my underlying thesis, uh, which is why uh, the future is is going to be such a challenge. Two hundred thousand years ago, we became equipped with a series of instincts that are hardwired into us from the, all of the time we spent trying to avoid being eaten. <laughs> and I would argue, I, I sort of boiled it down into four, four attributes. The first of which is, we are afraid of everything. Yeah. Because everything might have killed us. So we are inherently fearful. And when we are afraid, we tend to overreact violently. Second point, we discovered a long time ago that our chances of survival and passing on our genes, finding a mate, and passing on our genes was much higher when we lived in a group. And so we have turned into very social animals. Mm -hmm. um, you know, ancient humans would spend 20% of every day picking fleas out of their neighbors. This was socializing and reducing <laughs> endorphins. Well, we still spend about 20% of every day socializing. We're not picking fleas out, but we're singing or we're dancing or we're communicating and we're doing all the other stuff. We still socialize. We are intensely social. Item three, within a given group that we have joined, we attempt to climb the pyramid. We try to get status within that hierarchy because by increasing our status, 
we have a better chance of survival and a better chance of getting a higher quality mate because it's all about passing on our genes. Fourth and finally, we're curious. But we're not curious in any sort of cosmic altruistic sense. We're curious about what's over the hill. We want to know what's over the hill because it might eat us. Uh, yeah. So, so our curiosity is driven subliminally by fear. Mm -hmm. And when you you think we've all got those basic instincts embedded in us, and a lot of the psychological thinking of the past century was that you know we have this rational brain in the front, we've got the primitive brain in the back. And uh, the purpose of the rational brain has evolved in order to keep that primitive brain in check. We don't want that primitive brain to get out and do stuff. So that, thank God for our <laughs> rational brain. Well, the, the current best thinking on that is, in truth, the purpose of the rational modern brain is to come up with a good story to tell to our group about why it is we are going to do what the primitive brain wants us to do. <laughs> and if you think about civilizations and societies and the societal mores and, and social constructs that we have evolved over those ages to try and temper our behavior, the challenge that the fourth age presents is this. Up until today, your kids be a good example, every generation every generation of 7,000 generations, 8,000 generations, up until now, a kid could look at their parents and their grandparents and look at how they lived and how they behaved and what they did, and what they ate, and what they wore, and say, my future is going to look something like that. It may be slightly different, but it's going to follow that pattern. So I, I have a set of templates. I have a set of guides that will help me going into the future by looking at my parents and grandparents. I can assure you there isn't anything from my childhood in the 50s and the 60s that I can tell to my grandchildren that has any applicability whatsoever to the world that they're going to live in whatsoever. It is a truly a brave new world for kids today because that future is going to look so different. And boomers, what could you know? What the hell can I say? That's going to be of any value to you. Good luck, you know. Don't kill us in the process. So <laughs> with that gone, what are you left with? Well, you're back to those four instincts. Mm. And, you know, the first one was when you're scared, we tend to overreact violently. And we don't. Uh, <laughs> and that's, that's, that's what got me a little bit. Of, I'm a little concerned about that one. I mean, you saw that with COVID, right? When it first hit people freaked out they were going nuts yeah they and started beating no up was chinese people as a response it was no one was even thing. reacting with any sort of logic no yeah and now we're two years into it and people are just like yeah i don't, I don't care <laughs> it's the flu <laughs> yeah whatever it, it's it's wednesday let's let's move on <laughs> yeah so going forward into the fourth age are there any of these four instincts that are even still useful from what you think, well, I think they're into. unavoidable. I think those instincts are are what dictate how we behave. We're still going right. to form groups. We're still going to try and climb the hierarchies. the The challenge with group forming groups and being in groups, we're all in different kinds of groups, and and they sort of groups then form 
multiple groups and you get to a nation, okay? So it's a pyramid of groups. Well, the problem with groups is groupthink. Uh, I mean, this is classic, you know, this is uh, or- Orwell's 1984. Um, once you're in a group, uh, in order to demonstrate allegiance to that group, you'll do anything. Humans have shown over the years, they'll do anything to show allegiance to a group, which may include killing other humans. Mm. Uh, and so depending upon what the group think is, um, and depending upon the people uh, at the top of the hierarchy, how fearful they are, their tolerance for dissension or any views other than the official groupthink views, uh, that's problematic. And, uh, you know, has anybody recently ever stood up in public and said, I disagree with what you say, but I'll defend to my death your right to say it? You know, that's, <laughs> you don't hear that much anymore. No, nowadays it's a, that's dangerous, dangerous territory. But I mean, I know I do, and I'm pretty sure Jerry does. Even if we don't agree with people, we still want to hear the, what they have to say. But the na- the world right now is very against that. Yeah. If you don't agree with what they're saying, you're not allowed to have a voice. Well, That's and I right. would argue that at, at a very instinctive level, it's driven by fear. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, they'll and- give you the reasoning is that they don't want to give them a platform because they'll spread. And it's, well, if you don't have a conversation with them, how can you ever know, like, if I'm, if I'm just a complete and utter asshole, I'm never going to know that I'm an asshole if people don't tell me I'm an asshole or explain to me why. It, I'm just right. going to keep on going on my merry way and probably pick up people with me. Yeah. You know, conversations need to be had always. <laughs> and and the, the biggest issue we have, I think, is whether our inc- instincts will allow us to survive the future that we're creating. And we, the, the, you know, the, that we can't imagine. Now, in, in the book, I, 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 I've been a strategic planner most of my career. Uh, and one of the tools I've always used is scenario planning. Mm-hmm. So I do run through scenarios in, at the end of the book as to what the future might look like and what the implications of that might be. Uh, but I'm no prophet. I, you know, I'm, I, they're just scenarios. And, and again, the purpose is to just get people to disagree with me more than anything else. You know, if I'm not, if I'm not right, fine. What is right? And let's have that conversation. Yeah, you being right sounds a lot scarier than an alternative. <laughs> uh, but based on, based on what you think we're, we're heading into, what, what, is, uh, what do some of these scenarios look like? How does it play out in this fourth age in, in these uh, examples? Well, I, there are two tiers of scenario. Uh, the first tier is what happens from a uh, economic technological standpoint. And then the second tier is the societal implications scenarios that go along with that. Now, that first tier goes from depending upon the, and again, there's not going to be a uniform future for every country around Mm -hmm. the world. Uh, based upon where that country is now and where their populations are. If I'm in Nigeria and my population is about to grow by 500% and I've got lousy infrastructure to begin with and I have a very uh, uh, shaky uh, uh, socio-political system, uh, 
that's a very different future than uh, heavily industrialized Japan that's losing 40% of its population and what that looks like. Okay? Uh, but there, there are two sort of outcomes, uh, the one of which is a uh, protectionist, you know, I, I can't provide, uh, I can't compete. And so I can't provide. And so I'm going to put up barriers and attempt to insulate myself and my folks uh, from everybody else and try to survive on our own. Um, the other extreme is uh, I've got this mastered, you know, and I, I, can, I can do mass custom production. Uh, and uh, I, I can provide everybody everything they want and need uh, at a relatively low cost and high efficiency. Hmm. Uh, then when you look at the societal implications, uh, it, it, it comes down to how strong are your societal hierarchies, your political, economic, religious, military uh, hierarchies in your particular uh, uh, country? Uh, and are they capable of uh, holding the line uh, against chaos? Mm. Uh, and at one end, you've got countries because they are efficient and they're working well, they will do well. And at the other end, you've got utter disasters. Oh, yeah. And I think you're going to see both, depending upon where you are in the world. Um, what's really interesting about the demographics is the one group of countries that are actually holding the own, their own on population are the Anglo-Saxon countries. United States, United Kingdom, Canada, oh, okay. yeah. Australia, and New Zealand. And they're holding their own for two reasons. First, their birth rates are better. But secondly, they are all rule of law countries where it's considered safe and, and uh, opportunity exists. And that's where everybody else wants to go. Mm -hmm. so, so between birth rate and immigration, the Anglo-Saxon countries from a demographic standpoint are going to be the ones that are least destabilized. Do you think it'll always be that way? Because I mean... no, 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 no. I mean, nothing is ever always oh, the yeah. same. But I uh, let's run this through the, the end of the century and then mm -hmm. see what it looks like. Well, uh, I mean, you're hearing nowadays from uh, you know generations behind us that more more and more of them are not wanting to have children. They look at it and say, "Why would I want to bring children into this world?" Mm -hmm. And it seems like less and less of them want to work or at least they don't want to work in the situations we have now. They want a scenario that's maybe not even realistic to work. So where, I mean, it, it might not even be at the end of the century that we start seeing stuff where, you know, we start to see a sharp decline. Could be 20 years from now. Well, uh, again, from a global standpoint, that's certainly true. Uh, and, and you're certainly seeing that in the old world, you know, in, in Eastern Europe in particular. Uh, I, I'm a little more upbeat because I, I have always looked at uh, trends and, and uh, patterns from a minimum of a 10-year perspective. 
Uh, because if you're only listening to the tweet of the moment, all you're seeing is chatter. But if you draw oh, it nice. out over a 10 years, you can actually see a trend line. And so, you know, I, at the moment, there are a number of uh, uh, authors, Peter Zahan and uh, uh, George, um, geez. oh golly, I hate it. I got, I've gotten to that age, I can't remember it. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are two authors in particular who argue that the United States is singularly well situated uh, for a lot of different cyclic reasons. And that sort of the malaise of the moment, well, you think back to the late 70s, uh, you know, the Carter years, uh, uh, I don't know, or you, you think back to the 60s and, you know, the, uh, the race riots and, you know, we were assassinating presidential candidates and, uh, uh, you know, there, uh, you know, people forget that there's this, you know, cycle mm -hmm. like this. So I'm not, I'm not too particularly troubled by the malaise of the moment because I think it will pass just like, mm. uh, the Carter's malaise, you, you compare that to just the temperament of the country during the Reagan years set mm. aside the politics of the moment i'm just talking about the temperament of the country uh, you know it, it it goes through a cycle so i'm i'm cautiously upbeat in terms of the the future of the united states because we're a country that's got rule of law uh which is a very very you know it, it provides um uh, predictability and security for business and transactions, unlike China, which is rule of politics, not rule of mm -hmm. law. And so you never really know what the rules of the game are because they change underneath your feet. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and again, that's true for the, all the Anglo-Saxon countries and to a lesser degree, India, just because it was polluted with populated by <laughs> the British empire for hundred odd, 150 odd years. Um, uh, they're more of a rule of law nation than many of the others. Uh, but having that predictability and freedom to do what you want, uh, the, and, and again, take that technology and put it in the hands of innovators. Uh, sure, we got a lot of lazy people, but I think we've always had a bunch of lazy people. We just oh, yeah. have more media talking about the fact that we have lazy people. Agreed on that. I <laughs> When it comes to innovators, I think we have innovators today. It's just a different type. And I don't know if they're, I don't know when we'll see the next groundbreaking, ground, groundbreaking invention that literally changes humanity, right? Computers changed humanity in a way that none of us ever saw coming before computers. And since then, I guess you could say the internet probably, but I'd, I'd tie that together with, with computers. When you go from there, what do we have? Like, what, When's the next groundbreaking thing going to happen? And I don't know. Well, here's my here's seen... my here's my pet pe uh, pet answer to that. In the book, I mention at least a half a dozen uh, technology companies that are working on small fusion. Mm -hmm. Now, fusion, you know, the 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 standard physicist joke is fusion. You know, is twenty years away, and it will always be twenty years away. <laughs> uh, but it's but, not right but, now. Uh, no, it's not. And that conversation has always been about big fusion, mm. uh, the tokamaks of the world. 
there are a number of very novel approaches to fusion power being uh, developed uh, around the world. Uh, many of them in the States, ones in Australia that I can think of. So you got in China too. And it only takes one. Mm -hmm. If one of them cracks the code on small fusion, where you can have truly benign, cheap, ubiquitous, off-grid energy, that's, for me, that that's a game changer. I mean, and all it takes is that spark, right? And then we're off. The race is off, right? But there's so many things. I mean, from here, to me, the direction you have to head is up, right? It's space, right? Because we've, we've taken over so much of this world into what we've done with it. But space adds all sorts of new problems. And, you know, where do we go from there? Are we just going to Mars? <laughs> oh, that's that's the fifth age. Mm. That's the next book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Because what happens when we when we break the confines of the planet and expand into the solar system? I mean, we're bound to do it. I think we are. It's just yeah. there's a lot of issues there. And oh I, yeah, you know, we're yeah. But there were a it. lot of there were a lot of issues going from the old world to the new world. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, you know that's that's what we do. Uh, yeah, I guess that curiosity easy. thing. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, if, I hope I see those days in my lifetime because um, I'll be fascinated for it. I'll be terrified, but fascinated. <laughs> Well, and again, the rate of change is accelerating, and and we don't even we don't even see it because you can't keep up with the changes, the the metaverse, which it's and, and uh, NFTs. What the hell, you know? <laughs> uh, they're they're not in the book because uh, I I had written the book before they really popped, uh, uh, but it's just an example of the book already is obsolete in some respects. Uh, well, anytime you're dealing with technology. And it's yeah. it's funny you mentioned earlier too the uh, the cycles in the United States specifically because I've mentioned in the last couple episodes that what we're living through right now is it it feels just like the '80s, which is what you had mentioned. And Grizz and I were born in the '80s, and I have found through the technological changes that happened in my lifetime, I I've seen the shift in my personal life, especially with uh, things like the industrialization uh, and how that's changed. I can't get anything that I want at the store anymore. Most of it, I st I'm starting to have to order it more and more because things are not being stocked because they don't really need to. I actually just last week ordered a 3D printer because there's been so many times where I've needed something that I'd have to order and it's a week away because it's some weird thing. Now I have a 3D printer that I'll have set up by next week. And a lot of the stuff, I already have the files. So I can just print it when I need it. Well, I, in the book, I'm, I, I recount a story that my daughter-in-law told. This past summer, they were watching, uh, you know, Christmas and July movies, so they were watching Home Alone. And four kids. Uh, the oldest is twelve, ten, seven, five, six, something like that. And they're watching Home Alone, and there's a scene in there where Macaulay Culkin is watching a gangster movie that he tapes mm -hmm. some of the tech, you know, the, the voice over. And it's a VHS tape player that he's watching the movie on. And her son asked her, well, what's, what's that machine? What's, what's that, you know? <laughs> and she's, well, that's a, that's a VHS player. And, and 
and well, how does how does that work? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, bear in mind they have Netflix, you know, yeah. so they've got you know four million movies that mm-hmm. you just click, click, and there it is. He said, well, you, you'd go to a store, and they'd have all of these little boxes on the shelves, so they'd like have twenty boxes of a given movie, and they just have rows and rows and rows of these. You could go in and you pick the movie you want. And you take that box and you would rent it, you'd take it home and then you'd put it in the machine and then you'd watch the tape. They had another little machine that you, once you were done, you took it out and put it in this other machine to rewind it before you then took it back to the store. And her son was watching this and he looked at her and said, how did you live like that? (laughs) And and just the disbelief. Uh, There's a great YouTube video. I got a QR code for it in the book of a couple 17-year-olds being given a dial a rotary uh, phone oh <laughs> and asked to dial a number on a rotary telephone, just trying to figure out how it worked. Uh, it, it, you know, the, the, the gap in, you know, whoever looks at a roadmap. We've, we've had that in the past few episodes too. <laughs> but, I yeah. mean, that kind of comes down to the whole, what I was saying is technology and, and the speed at which it changes is all relative, right? If you look at literally the technology has changed today that we probably didn't even hear about you know we're flying right now at 100 miles an hour and we don't even realize it because we're sitting at 100 miles an hour where if you showed someone back in 1800 the amount of technology that we just discovered today their head would literally explode because they, they, can't even, the they wouldn't even be able to understand it i'm trying to think of the uh there's a guy he's got a uh, website uh, he's in the book, and and I, I apologize for not having his name on my. Uh, but he came up with a, uh, I guess he called it a die progress unit. Uh, I'm I'm getting the acronym wrong, uh, but basically it was the unit of time a person would have to travel in the future before what they saw in the future killed them because it was so, you know, so for somebody from 200,000 years ago, you'd go 150, 175,000 years, and it would still look the same. Uh, From 11,000 years ago, you could get to maybe 1500 before Mm -hmm. the changes that you witnessed in your time travel would uh, shock you to death. Uh, And then that unit has now gone down to to this. It's what I call time depth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that uh, that cycle time has just gone from, you know, this down to nothing. Uh, and it cycles so quickly. And, there, and there's nothing. I think most boomers are scared to death. <laughs> oh, yeah. That time frame for them to go into the future and it would shock them to death is probably only 100 years from now. I, I'd put it 10. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> things are things are happening. So the guy that had a transplant of a genetically modified pig's heart oh yeah yep the the rate of change more and more of that and i don't i mean do you think any anything like that would really kill a boomer (laughs) like i think at this point some of my colleagues are pretty hidebound (laughs) (laughs) um one thing that jerry and i have both talked about in depth is when people will willingly accept new limbs because they're an upgrade yeah. where it's you know it's just a machine and they they'll will it like there's nothing wrong with their arms they just want a new one i've actually said that if if it was viable and the limbs were better than mine right now i would absolutely not hesitate to get new legs 
it's interesting. Uh, you've got early adopters. You know, it's that that uh, that scale where early adopters are at the front end, then there's the uh, laggards at the end. I'm sort of in the middle of that bell curve when, you know, when it comes to like LASIK surgery on your eyeballs. I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I <laughs> I'll stick with the glasses. See, I would do LASIK <laughs> in a minute. Yeah, my wife is actually planning on getting it done. But in, I guess that means Terry, you probably wouldn't have your arms removed for the robot version. Not, not unless there was something fundamental. Although I'll tell you, I, I probably have my right elbow fixed. <laughs> <laughs> but again, they're already doing that. They're replacing the, the joints. So looking forward at what you think we're going to running, be running into and what you know about humans, can we prepare for that? Like, is there something we should be doing as a species that we are not? Besides, right now we're making rules well, and regulations based on the past hundred years. I guess that, and, and this may be a cheap out, okay? But here's the way I look at it: when when you think about how human beings analyze, make decisions, the the, the mental process, there is a model. It's called the DIKW model: data, information, knowledge, and wisdom. Mm-hmm. You start out with raw data, just myriad facts all over the place, and from all of that information information floating or data floating around, you pull out the bits that are material to the question you're trying to answer. So you extract from all that data the information you need. Then you analyze the information and you come up with knowledge about how to do something. Now, all managers in business are are knowledge brokers. They know how to do something, and that's why they have the job that they have. The difference between knowledge and wisdom is understanding that there is more than one way of addressing a question and parsing among different alternative solutions and making the right choice is wisdom. Uh, for I'll give you a military example. Enemy's up on the hill. I'm down here at the bottom of the hill. I could do a flank attack. I could do a frontal attack, or I could retreat. Those are three options. I have the knowledge of how to execute those those three maneuvers. Wisdom comes in. Do I? You know, which of those do I do? Okay. Uh, it's it's the old uh, Peter Drucker quote. Managers do things right. Leaders do the right things. So wisdom is understanding the, dis- the consequences, the pros and cons of different paths of, of behavior and choosing among them. And I would argue that you, when you talk about wise people, you're invariably talking about older people. And that's simply because we've lived long enough to have failed so many times. We're the survivors of failure. And, and wisdom came out of that, that, uh, that process. Now, fast forward into the future we're looking at. The amount of data bits is exploding, absolutely exploding. So pulling data that you need to get to that bucket, you're going from a fire hose to a teacup to, to get the right information I need to develop knowledge. And what I would argue is what we, what we need at the moment is, and this goes back to Hans Rosling, 
the knowledge that our policymakers have is wrong because they haven't taken in all of the data to pull the right information. They've been operating off of obsolete, you know, the wrong information. You know, so going through that process to get to knowledge, let alone wisdom, you, you've got to appreciate that vast increasing ocean of data to get to the information you need. So, you know, to answer your question, I think we have to pay more attention to the data to truly understand the state of the world. Do you think that the politicians and the, the elite have taken in the data? Or do you, to me, I think they've taken in the data and they don't, they pay attention to what they want to, right? I mean, we see these things coming like a freight train and they still pay attention to what's important to them. Right, right. I mean, it's, they self-select. Yeah. Uh, so their information that they've extracted from the data is skewed. Yes, exactly. And and uh, and the irony here, you know, we've we've talked about uh, uh, that political compact. Uh, the you know, I I want a job. I want my family to be safe and my kids the future. And I want you to leave me alone. <laughs> uh, how that failed. The and and we've got disenfranchised folks at the bottom of the pyramid. Well, there's increasingly too many in the top of the pyramid. The ruling elite have taken care of their own. Their kids get into the nice schools, their kids get jobs and so forth and so on. But the problem is, as the, the top of the pyramid has gotten bigger with more, you know, there aren't enough ruling elite jobs to go around. There aren't enough you know, uh, partners in law firm slots uh, there aren't enough seats in Congress or senatorial seats to satisfy all of these young elites. Well, that's and, my thing. And, I think I think to bring it around, they're focusing on survival, right? Yeah, they're focusing everybody on keeping is. themselves in that spot, but they're not paying attention to the long picture. No, their survival and their job only last. But once everything around it crumbles, it can't exist anymore. So great, you right. got reelected into office, but you haven't solved any of the actual issues. <laughs> that's right. That's that's exactly right. And uh, th it comes down to well, instinctive behavior is to get to the top of the pyramid and do whatever is necessary to stay to stay there because that's how you improve your perceived chances to survive and pass on your genes. You're helping your kids. Uh, you're you're uh, getting into the right schools and getting the right jobs. Everybody else can go to hell. <laughs> I've I've said this to Jerry many times before, and you know I I come in and out of it every every year or so. Is that it seems like we're having more and more unrest, and when you finally get like the family man to to take up arms or or, or a cause, that's when all of a sudden things are going to change because those are the people that are fighting for someone else and they're they're dropping everything they have to make a change for something else. You know, it's great to see college kids or, or single people out there trying to make a change in the world. But when the family woman, family man is finally had enough and they sacrifice everything they have to go out and actually make a change, that's when you'll see something. And it gets back to understanding the true state of the world and and you, 
you can't think it through. You can't get from information to knowledge, let alone wisdom, without being willing to take in all the facts. And groupthink gets in the way. Mm. You know, groupthink says, no, you weren't, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to let that person talk. Mm. We're, we're, we're not going to look at that issue. Uh, we're going to we're going to ignore that uh, 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 data because it doesn't uh, fit the narrative. Yeah, I, I hope we're not long for that. I hope we get out of that way of thinking. But unfortunately, I don't think we're at that crest yet. <laughs> well, we and, and again, <laughs> it's I think it's driven by fear. Yeah, it's instinctual that so this it's not necessarily related 100% to your book, but to bring it back for a minute to the beginning where we're talking about the uh, the population issue that we're going to be facing in the future. Uh, one thing that I haven't heard anyone talk about, but I've actually been reading a lot about it lately is uh, anti-aging technology. And specifically, I've seen, I can't remember the name of this company. There's, I think there's two or three different companies. One's based in California and the uh, the elites, people with a lot of money and not a lot to spend it on are dumping an absurd amount of money into that technology. And I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, something come out of that in the next 20 years where Jeff Bezos doesn't necessarily have to die. They already have technology like that. It's just, you'll never see it, Jerry. <laughs> yes. They've but, already got technology. That, that, but we're talking about people that to deal with things like that. the people that have the money to buy that technology. Mm -hmm. They, are going to outlive everybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, it's, I think it's gonna create another weird dynamic that nobody's really thinking about maybe 50 or hundred years in the future where those people are still around. And then people like us are, we're not reproducing anymore. And yep. it, then you look at places like Africa, their 500% explosion. I'm, I'm interested to see what that looks like. What are your thoughts on that, Terry? Oh, well, I, you know, you don't want to sound alarmist, but <laughs> now we try not to, but you know, when you, when you look at huge population increases in countries that are already politically unstable, I, I look, most of the African countries, their, their um, boundaries were drawn by colonial powers. So they're, they cross tribal lines. Uh, and cultural lines that were there for eons before the colonials came along. So you've, you've got countries that are already marginal in terms of uh, their just political capability. And then you, you dump huge numbers. I mean, you look at the size of some of their slums in some of their cities. Uh, it, they just go on forever. Um, and you've got all increasing numbers of young people who are leaving the countryside and coming into these cities and adding to these uh, slums that are basically lawless enclaves. And, and I, 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 I can't see a happy end for a lot of sub-Saharan Africa uh, in, the, in the near term. Uh, I, I just see conflict. Well, uh, I, I don't know how you can get around it. Jerry, who was the, I don't know, was he a doctor, the Callahan that did the experiments with the rats that we did research on? Was it Dr. Oh, uh, is it Callahan or? Yeah, I know who you're talking about. I can't remember but his he name did, right, right he off He did all these head. experiments with rats and population. 
And he tried to make a utopia. He tried to make all sorts of social structures. And in the end, every time it failed, every time they'd get to a point where all of a sudden their population capped and then it would just plummet to where it, every, I don't think he actually had a viable experiment every That's time. John B. Calhoun. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just, even within it, he was recognizing within rats, not that I really want to compare humans to rats, but he was finding that they had social constructs that we see today. And then just, it would, all of a sudden, it would just start breaking down to where populations reduced to literally zero. If, if there's any group of countries, uh, Peter Zehan, for example, wrote uh, two books. One was the, uh, uh, the accidental superpower, and the other was the reluctant superpower. Mm. Um, and they both were basically telling the same story, but he argues based on a combination of demographics and geography and, and culture, uh, you know, the fact that in some respects, America is unique in that the population was self-selected with the notable exception of uh, African slaves, but everybody else who came here, came here intentionally, chose to come here. And Zehan's thesis is that given a lot of different dynamics that, that we've sort of touched on, uh, in effect, the rest of the world has gone to hell in a handbasket. Uh, but the, the, the thing about North America, throw in Canada and Mexico if you want, is that the population is big enough that literally we could, we don't need globalization to survive. We could survive on our own without the rest of the world. You know, talk about isolationists. So but, we've heard that too big to fail thing, though. <laughs> well, yeah, but but in terms of what is it in the rest of the world that we are desperate for that we couldn't generate ourselves? Mm. Uh, and the answer is not much. No, but I mean, right now, I mean, I think if all of a sudden we had to tomorrow, we would struggle a little bit, but we would recover. Yes, you know, I think we, whereas we, the rest we, of the world craters. <laughs> yeah, I think we have the ability to do that. The main reason we don't do any of that now is because it's cheaper for China and India to make it for us. Exactly. I don't think it right. would take much for us to re-gear if we had to. That's, if, That's right. um, when we, we were talked about 2034 and like, you know, America and the way it is, and that some people believe that we don't have the resilience or the adaptability nowadays to, to tackle things. And I think we don't have a reason to right now. But I think if you were given a good enough reason, American people will always, because it's just the type of type of people we are, it's, we will always come up to match whatever we need to and find a way out of it. But well, it and, brings and the again, idea back into the whole space thing, where I think if you ever get to a point where we have habitable areas in space, you will find like-minded people going to those yes. areas. Like if, yes. we, if we have to uh, terraform Mars, you guess what? You're going to find some hard ass people going to Mars. <laughs> yeah, it, it will be self-selection, much, yeah, much exactly. akin to what happened in America. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, the, the I get a little tired about people saying, oh, we're going to have another civil war. And, oh, the, you know, the world's coming to an end. For me, those people really haven't paid much attention to our history. Yeah. Uh, when well, when you look at the, <laughs> when you look at the cycles of our history, uh, uh, we've gone through ups and downs. I mean, we had in the 30s uh, Nazis 
uh, in Radio City Music Hall, uh, you know, doing, you know, a big uh, um, convention. Uh, we had the Ku Klux Klan marching down Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, we did happen to have a civil war. Uh, and it, when you look at this again, look at the 60s uh, and the turmoil with Vietnam. Uh, and, and people go, oh, well, it's never been as bad as it is now. Really? <laughs> well, I, think, I think that's a generational thing. I think it's always something to think that you have it harder than anyone else has ever had. It. I, I and think you you're always right. think that the generation behind you is a bunch of lazy, lazy turds. But realistically, everyone's had it the same. And, you know, I mean, you have the benefit because uh, what year were you born? Uh, 1954. So 1954, you got to live through a lot of that and see it. And, you know, now you're seeing things come around again. And you're like, well, yeah, I've seen this happen before. And, I mean, I brought it up countless times in this uh, Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. If you listen to that song today, you're going to go, holy shit, it's the same damn crap we're bitching about right now. Yeah. You know, and that was written when, 70s, 80s? Well, what, for example, um, my, my first employment was in national security. Uh, so I started, basically, I spent the uh, 80s as a, as a cold warrior, minor, minor cold warrior. And when I started, it was the most satisfying work I ever had uh, because it was a clear mission. You know, this was about survival. Uh, we were under the threat at any given moment of a thermonuclear disaster. Uh, on a, a KAL 007, the KAL 007 flight <laughs> that got shot down by the Soviets, uh, you know, the Berlin Wall, um, uh, the number of, well, Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the number of times that we were on the brink of annihilation. And you lived with that on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And it was so satisfying. And I remember thinking, I've got my career. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be in national security for the next 40 years. This is so satisfying. Mm -hmm. 1989, the Berlin Wall comes down. And 1990, or was it, yeah, 1989, 1990, it was 90. the flag came off the Kremlin. Mm -hmm. The Soviet Union imploded. Well, if in 1987, when I was at the National War College, if I had stood up in class and said to all of the colonels, <laughs> Foreign Service officers that in two years I forecast the Berlin Wall is coming down. You know, I would have been politely ushered off the stage. You know, <laughs> hey, yeah, okay. Yeah, but you then know. afterwards you'd look like a genius. Yeah, yeah. but the point. But I didn't. I didn't know that at the time. And it, and the world then and and how we perceived uh, existence and how fragile it was. You don't. No one appreciates that now. No one that didn't live through it. Uh, it's just. It's just an entirely different world. Yeah, I, I do find it interesting now. And full disclaimer: this, my, this is my opinion, not necessarily scientifically based. We're all opinion here. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, right now in history, especially in America, is one of the best times to be alive as a normal person, like not mm -hmm. part of the elite or anything like that. And I think that probably contributes a bit to a lot of this being manufactured, like manufactured fear, because we have instincts that need something to, to work against. 
I, if you go on the internet for five, 10 minutes at any given time on any given day, the world is coming to an end. But if you take a step back and look at the bigger picture, the problems either don't seem to exist the way that they appear on the news, or they're just not that bad. So things mm -hmm. like uh, you mentioned a lot of people talking about a civil war. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to have one. The, you know, we still have some issues that are left over from the last 40 years, but being an American in particular is, is fantastic right now. If you talk yeah. to someone from Europe, they think that we are a third world terrorist country. Well, yeah, it's, what the news it's, all, it's all representation based on the news. It's, it, a lot of it, I feel, is manufactured. Well, my niece, uh, who is this sweet young thing, got a high moral tone about how terrible and horrible we are and our politics is horrible and this is a, a bad country and it's never been a good country and mm. yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Whereupon I said, well, be so kind. Don't, don't forget to give me your forwarding address to the, the country that is better that you're mm. moving, you know, whichever country that is, that's yeah, better than this, you, <laughs> you know, let, let me know where that is. I'd, I'd be interested to find out because, uh, Good luck with that. Uh, I think you're right. I don't think there's a better place to live at the time, at the present time. Yeah, no, we've had that conversation multiple times over. <laughs> we we don't do know a lot of younger people who uh, also share that sentiment that the United States is a terrible place. But I think a lot of it's uh, lack of information, really. They, I, I can't disagree that there's a lot of issues. Every country has a lot of issues. But I'd still rather be here than... Well, and, and I, I think the genius of this country uh, is we have the capacity to correct. You know, I, I don't think I don't think this country was ever a perfect place, mm -hmm. but the city on the hill was never a reality. It's always been a vision of what we could be, what we aspire to be. Uh, I don't think anybody would ever, ever stood up and said that all of our problems are solved. Uh, but to say we're the best country in the world, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that because we have the capacity to change. Mm. And many countries don't. Uh, you, when you look at what's going on in Afghanistan at the moment, it's, oh, yeah. it is, it's absolutely horrific. It's just, it's so sad. You know, but that's, the, I mean, again, there's that whole cyclical thing, right? Uh, not that, that we've seen anything that bad with them before, but it, they've gone through this how many times now? Three? Yeah. It's, you know, the Taliban is burning musical instruments. They, they mm -hmm. burn down the university. Uh, it, it's just, oh my gosh. Now, even with, with all that being said, uh, I personally do have uh, an optimistic outlook for the future. Even going into the fourth age, um, I'm hoping, and I'm pretty sure I'm right, that we'll... <laughs> human beings as a species is going to overcome quite a bit. And I think that, uh, especially with young, younger people caring as much as they do now, uh, we can probably get through the issues where the people who are in control right now are not looking forward when they make decisions. Yeah, well, it comes down to making sure that you've pulled all the data, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that, that you're thinking about this with uh, with. Uh, the real the real facts as opposed to the facts that you would like them to be <laughs> yeah i mean i i can almost guarantee that we'll pull through a lot of things jerry to to what you were saying i just think that how many how much of it is going to be stuff that has happened before that we're seeing again you know i mean 
I guarantee you're going to have some big war in the not too distant future that, you know, it's just tensions are so high and they're only going to get worse. It's just who's the war between? Are we even in it? Is America even part of it? There's going to be one. It's just, and you're just going to keep seeing those things because as Terry said, we're humans and we have these, you know, four things in our head that are just ingrained there that we can't get out of. And, and number one is fear, right? And what are we afraid of? You know, and that changes for everyone. Well, based on uh, the technology that's coming up, uh, I would say our next big war, Grizz, is probably going to be the machine war. Oh, absolutely. Well, cyber. Well, I was talking about the Matrix. Yeah, of course you were. Jerry always goes towards the <laughs> Matrix. <since> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but I think that uh, that's a good positive note to leave it on, other than you talking about war again, as you usually do. Um, <laughs> I always go negative. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, Terry, can you tell uh, our listeners uh, the title of your book and where they can get it? Sure. Uh, it's on Amazon. Uh, it's self-published. And, and by the way, just a quick digression. You know, that's another example of an industry. You, uh, the, uh, you, know, you think of the traditional publishing houses. I, when I started work on this, I thought I'll get an agent. I'll go to a publishing house. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, majority of the books on Amazon, I believe, are self-published. Yeah, we've actually had quite a few self-published yeah. authors, authors on here. So it's our fourth age, a village elder's story for young homines sapientes about surviving their future history. Now, homines sapientes, so what is that? Well, it's another example of getting the information correct. We've all said and continue to say homo sapiens mm -hmm. right. when we're talking about humanity as plural. Well, I, I sent the manuscript out to a number of academics, one of whom was a classics professor for his critique. And he immediately came back and said, well, your Latin is wrong. Homo sapiens is singular. The Latin is homines sapientes. Now, the reason I stuck it on the cover, because everybody goes, well, what the, what the hell is that? <laughs> is it's a living example of we think we know something and we don't. We've got it wrong because everybody says Homo sapiens. I got a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. And it's you know it's on Amazon. You can get a Kindle, uh, paperback, hardback. Prices are all driven by the fact that it's in color. There are a lot of charts, a lot of graphs, a lot of QR codes, and uh, printing. Uh, the Amazon prints them on demand. When somebody orders one, that's when they print it. There's no inventory. Uh, but the printing cost for color is higher. All right. So listeners, go out and buy his book and uh, read about our possible future. Uh, I'm, I'm going to end up reading it, too. I've got a couple of books to get through, and yours is on the list now. All contributions are gratefully accepted. <laughs> <laughs> and again, thanks for being on the show, and uh, we really appreciated it. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Well, Jerry, are you, you buying a doomsday bunker yet or just saying fuck it? I would buy a doomsday bunker just because they're cool, but I don't think it would help me. <laughs> well, for one, you'd never be able to bury it because your fucking backyard just rocks. I do live on Stone Hill. So, yeah, it's got that name for a reason. I can't even dig six inches down without hitting rock. You'd be that dumbass with the fucking doomsday bunker, like on a hill <laughs> where everyone <laughs> could see it. <laughs> I'm not going to need a doomsday bunker, though, because we're going to live in the metaverse. The Matrix has us.
again we, we that's true just we just Terry, talked to terry about ago, this we talked about how the matrix is gone it died <laughs> no the franchise maybe but in real life uh i haven't named it yet because it hasn't fully uh conglomerated into a, a single entity this metaverse is everywhere but someday they'll all be together and as you heard from terry that's where we'll be so on that point not to have a whole nother episode right now but if the matrix as you know and love it and want it to be was mm -hmm. created by the zuck robot would you still go there i wouldn't go there at all no matter who <laughs> <Okay. made it. laughs> least of all if it was made by the zuck i've actually been thinking about sending the zuck and google a bill for my data <laughs> it actually like it makes sense because they always said the robots made the fucking matrix. Well, the robots are making the fucking matrix again. Yeah, they are. Zuckerberg is a robot. And anyway. Google, I don't even know if they're even run by humans. Thank you again for listening to Beautiful Bastards. New episodes every Monday. Remember to like and subscribe. You shouldn't have done that. He's just a boy. That's Jerry's book, fucking Rona Cop. <laughs>